Well, we're in a we're in a teaching series we called Get Fit. Get Fit. I thought, boy, that's sure going to discourage people to hear that the teaching series is called Get Fit. <laughs> uh, I like this picture here of this guy. So, someone told me this morning it's not a Canadian Army issue. I'm not sure if that's true or not. So someone said it might be a German soldier. I'm not sure. But um, anyhow, um, just the thought of boot camp. I had a brother who went through boot camp to be part of the reserves. And uh, he said that there was so much swearing, so much swearing at him <laughs> during boot camp that he said he would go to to sleep at night in the short hours they would give him, and they kept swearing at him in his sleep. <laughs> he said he would, he would get, they'd be yelling at him in his dreams, and then he'd wake up and find out it was real. <laughs> That's what his experience of boot camp was. Um, he had another friend who came with him to boot camp, and the friend said, um, and the friend quit halfway through, and the friend, anyhow, my brother Phil was taking him to the to the bus station, and uh, he grabbed Phil and he said, Phil, come with me. <laughs> and Phil said, no, I, I'm hoping to finish boot camp so I can be part of the reserves. He says, Phil, you don't realize it, but they're training us to kill people. And Phil said, yeah, it's the army. I got that from the beginning. I, all, <laughs> I <was> the, <laughs> so, <laughs> anyhow. <laughs> Anyhow, I don't know what kind of training process you're in. I hope it's not quite that insane. Um, but sometimes life can be insane. It can be crazy. And um, we're, we're looking at some passages of Scripture where Jesus is preparing for some heavy, heavy opposition that's going to come his way. I mean, why is military boot camp so harsh, so unrelenting, so unforgiving? Because the enemy will be the same. And worse. And Jesus, in the passage we're going to look at today, in the passages we have been looking at, Jesus is preparing for uh, showdown. He's preparing for opposition. He's preparing for attack, uh, to be attacked. And uh, I, I think we can take a lot of cues. Last week, uh, Pastor Kurt did an incredible job of just talking about repentance. How, what, what repentance is. It's not just being sorry. It's not just making an apology. But it really is a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of, of behavior. It's a, it's, a, it's a total turnaround. And um, I think the, he set us up really well because repentance is, is a part of what's going to get us fit, get us ready. Uh, if, if, if followers of Jesus are allowing God to speak to the areas in our lives where we're not in line with him and then respond and get in line with him to repent, to turn around from away from sin and towards God, then we're going to be in good shape for the attack or better shape for the attack that might come or for the challenges we might face or the obstacles we're meant to go, get over. It's really good preparation. So we're going through the, uh, we're going to track our way through uh, different parts of the book of Luke, and um, Luke is an interesting book, and if you were here with us in the fall, we went through the book of Acts, and Acts is, and the book of Luke are written by the same person, so the book of Acts, we did that first, and now we're doing, we're going back to Luke, it's sort of like what Star Wars does, you know, you start with the, the future, and then you go back and do the prequel, so we're doing the prequel right now, what happened before Acts, and, uh, and, and going to learn from that, but I thought I'd 
I, I've got this video I thought I'd show it to you uh, from the Bible Project. It's a, a, a series of videos that are made to help people understand the Bible. And it's about an eight-minute video. And I thought early on in the process I wanted to show you something that gives you a bit of an overview of some of the book of Luke. So you understand it. If you've never read the book of Luke, of course, it's the only Bible book named after a Star Wars character. But uh, it is... It's jam-packed. It's really good. But I, well, I want to just give you an overview of the first nine chapters, and then I'll come up and I'll, I'll bring my message. So let's, let's watch that video together, and then I'll, I'll be back with some uh, insights from chapter 3. According to Luke, it's one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life, and it's actually part one of a unified two-volume work, Luke Acts. If you compare the opening lines of both of these books, it's clear that they come from the same author. And there are internal clues in the book of Acts, as well as an early tradition that identifies the author as Luke, the traveling companion and co-worker of Paul the Apostle, who we know was also a doctor. Luke opens his work with a preface, telling us how and why he wrote this book. He acknowledges that there's many other fine accounts of Jesus' life out there, but he wanted to go back to the eyewitness traditions of as many early disciples as he could in order to produce what he calls an orderly account about the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now that word fulfilled shows us why Luke wrote this account. For him, the story of Jesus isn't just ancient history. He wants to show how it's the fulfillment of the long covenant story of God in Israel, and bigger than that, of the story of God in the whole world. The book's design is fairly clear. There's a long introduction that sets up the stories of John the Baptist and Jesus. Then in chapters 3 to 9, Luke presents a robust portrait of Jesus and his mission in his home region of Galilee. After that, the large midsection of the book is Jesus' long journey to Jerusalem, which leads to the story's climax, Jesus' final week in Jerusalem leading up to his death and resurrection, which then leads on into the book of Acts. In this video, we're just going to focus on the first half of Luke's gospel. The extended introduction tells in parallel the birth stories of John the Baptist and Jesus. So you have this elderly priestly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then this young unmarried woman, Mary and Joseph. They both receive an unlikely divine promise that they're going to have a son. Both promises are fulfilled then, as John and then Jesus are born, and both parents sing poems of celebration. Now these poetic songs, they're filled with echoes from the Old Testament psalms and prophets, showing how these children will fulfill God's ancient promises. But these poems also preview each child's role in the story to follow. So John is the prophetic messenger promised in the Torah and the prophets who's going to prepare Israel to meet their God. And Jesus, he's the messianic king promised to David, who's going to bring God's reign over Israel and God's blessing to the nations, just like he promised to Abraham. After this, Mary brings Jesus to the Jerusalem temple for his dedication, and two elderly prophets, Anna and Simeon, they see Jesus, and they recognize who he is. And Simeon sings his own song, a poem inspired by the prophet Isaiah. He says, this child is God's salvation for Israel, and he will become a light to the nations. 
So with all this anticipation, the story moves forward into the next main section, where Luke presents Jesus and his mission. He sets the stage with John's renewal movement at the Jordan River, where he's calling a new, repentant, recommitted Israel into existence through baptism. He's preparing for the arrival of God's kingdom. And then Jesus appears as the leader of this new Israel, and he's marked out by the Spirit and the voice of God from heaven. He is the beloved Son of God. After this, Luke follows with the genealogy, and it traces Jesus' origins back to David, then back to Abraham, and then all the way back to Adam from the book of Genesis. Luke's claiming here that Jesus is the messianic king of Israel who will bring God's blessing, but not only to Israel, the family of Abraham. He is here for all the sons of Adam, for all humanity. After this, Luke has strategically placed the story of Jesus going to his hometown, Nazareth, where he launches his public mission. At a synagogue gathering, Jesus stands up and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and freedom for the prisoners, new sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. Now, along with the other Gospels, Jesus is presented here. He's the messianic king bringing the good news of God's kingdom. But what Luke uniquely highlights are the social implications of Jesus' mission. So he brings freedom. The Greek word is aphasis. It literally means release, and it refers to the ancient Jewish practice of the year of Jubilee described in Leviticus 25. It's when all Israelite slaves were released, when people's debts were canceled, when land that was sold is returned back to families. It's all a symbolic reenactment of God's liberating justice and mercy. And then Jesus says that this good news of release is specifically for the poor. Now, in the Old Testament, the poor, or in Hebrew, ani, it's a much broader category than just people who don't have very much money. It refers also to people of low social status in their culture, like people with disabilities or women and children and the elderly. It also can include social outsiders, like people of other ethnic groups, or people whose poor life choices have placed them outside acceptable religious circles. And Jesus says that God's kingdom is especially good news for these people. So after this, Luke immediately puts in front of us a large block of stories, showing us what Jesus' good news for the poor looks like. It involves the healing of a bedridden sick woman, or a man who has a skin disease, or someone who's paralyzed. There are stories here also about Jesus welcoming into his community a tax collector, like Levi, who's not financially poor, but he is a social outsider. There's a story about Jesus forgiving a prostitute. Luke showing us how Jesus' kingdom brought restoration and reversal of people's whole life circumstances. He's expanding the circle of people who get invited in to discover the healing power of God's kingdom. And as Jesus' mission attracts a large following, he does something even more provocative. He forms these people into a new Israel by appointing over them the 12 disciples as leaders corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Jesus teaches his manifesto of an upside-down kingdom, or as Luke calls it, the sermon given on the plain. He says God's love for the outsider and the poor means that his kingdom brings a reversal of all of our value systems. He is here to form a new alternative people of God who are going to respond to Jesus' invitation by practicing radical generosity, by serving the poor. People who are going to lead by serving and live by peacemaking and forgiveness. People who are deeply pious but who reject religious hypocrisy. 
Now, Jesus' radical kingdom vision, his claim to divine authority, it starts to generate resistance and controversy, especially from Israel's religious leaders. His outreach to questionable people, it's a threat to their religious traditions and their sense of social stability. And so they start accusing Jesus of blaspheming God, of being a drunk and mixing with sinners. And so this section culminates in a new revelation of Jesus' mission to his disciples. He says that, yes, he is the messianic king and that he's going to assert his reign over Israel by dying in Jerusalem by becoming the suffering servant king of Isaiah 53, who dies for the sins of Israel. And then the shocking idea, it gets explored in the next story, as Jesus goes up a mountain with three of his disciples, and he's suddenly transformed in front of them. They're enveloped in this cloud of God's presence, who announces, this is my chosen son. And then Moses and Elijah are there, the two other prophets who encountered God's presence and voice on a mountain. And Luke tells us that they're talking together about Jesus' exodus that he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Now that Greek word exodus, it's a clear reference to the exodus story. Luke is portraying Jesus here as a new Moses who will lead his newly formed Israel into freedom and release from the tyranny of sin and evil and all of its forms, personal, spiritual, and social. And that's going to lead us into the second half of the book. But for now, that's the first half of the Gospel according to Luke. All right. <clears throat> all right. So just a little bit for some of you budding Bible scholars to, uh, to chew on here this morning. We're going to read together in Luke chapter 3 and verse 21, uh, the account of Jesus' baptism together. So um, if you can, I didn't get the page number for the bench Bible there, but uh, we'll, we'll see if we can get it up on the screen and then we can read it. All right, do you want to read it together? Let's, let's try this. Uh, when all the people were being baptized... Jesus was baptized too, and as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit, do you have that? And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now we'll stop there. The rest of what's in the chapter is it goes on to say Heli, the son of that guy, the son of the next guy, the next guy, the next guy. And it goes through a whole list of different people in, uh, of Jesus' ancestors, of his genealogy. And um, it goes all the way back to Adam. We'll get to that later, Okay. But uh, that's an important part, but I'm just not going to read through all those names right at this moment. There's a number of questions I wanted to just jump onto this morning and, uh, and to tackle. When it's a very short little thing about Jesus getting baptized. But I think there's a lot of questions that just bubble to the surface if you spend any time looking at these few verses. Uh, number one, why does Jesus have to get baptized? I mean, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And last week we learned about repentance. A, a turning away from sin and a turning towards God. Yet, Jesus didn't have any sin. The other people who are coming that John was speaking to, 
whether it was tax collectors or Pharisees or regular people or Roman soldiers, all that different diverse crowd was there, they had sin in their lives. They had areas where they had lived selfishly. They'd lived outside of God's will. They'd gone their own way. And, and they had stuff to repent about. And yet Jesus didn't have anything to repent about. He was a sinless son of God, had no bad track record that he could say sorry for or that he could turn away from. So why does Jesus do this? In fact, uh, John himself sort of pushes back when, quite strongly when Jesus comes and says he wants to be baptized. He said, no, no, you should be baptizing me. This doesn't make any sense. Everyone else, I've been telling them, you should be baptized. But now that you've shown up, no, 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 I don't think you should be baptized. Why does Jesus get baptized? Well, there's lots of different ways we could, we could talk about this or, or try to come to a conclusion here. But I think this is a decisive step of commitment for, that Jesus is making to begin his public ministry. And to begin his public ministry, which is, starts at age 30, basically to 33, these three years that changed the world, he aligns himself with people who are turning uh, from sin towards God. And I think this is important, not because of Jesus' past, but because of Jesus' future. Jesus is about to, if you get into chapter 4, or actually even, is it end of 3 or 4, but right away you're going to see that Jesus goes head to head against the enemy. He goes into battle right away. And he is going to wage war with sin. He's going to be tempted in all sorts of different ways. It's really important that the one who is going to face sin and defeat sin, ultimately he defeats sin on the cross by offering himself as a pure sacrifice, it's important that he is sinless, that he doesn't fall into temptation. And so he aligns himself with other people who have sin in their lives and say, oh, I'm, I'm, I've got sin I need God to deal with and I'm going to turn towards God. He, he aligns himself as the enemy of sin and on the side of God as a submitted, obedient son of the Father. For those who are getting baptized, it was about past sin, but for Jesus it was about his future struggle with sin. And his baptism declares his alignment with God the Father against sin and selfishness. So, what can we take out of this? Because we're, we're, we're hoping that this will be practical for us, that we'll see Jesus in his preparation to do his mission, and that we also, who are hoping to go through some sort of fitness preparation, to be spiritually fit, to go through a boot camp, what can we grab out of this? I think Jesus' first step that he shows us is the step of commitment. The step of commitment comes first. I think that's helpful to us on, on a really practical level. Um, you ever sort of thought, you ever you come to a situation and you never really thought about it in advance and then you made some really bad decisions and then later on you're like, oh, if only I knew I was going to get into that situation. If only I was prepared. If only I had thought through what I was going to do. Or if only I had thought through what I was going to say. If only I had a game plan. Well, commitment is forming a game plan in advance. How much better if you go back to those life situations and say, you know what, when this comes, when this happens, because I know it happens, because I see it happens, because it happens in our culture all the time. When this happens, this is what I'm going to do. 
This is going to be my game plan. This is going to be my escape plan. This is going to be the guardrail set up so I don't get into that trouble. This is going to be the way that I avoid that trouble. This is the way I'm going to talk my way out of that trouble. This is my one-liner that I'm going to say. This is the action I'm going to do. Commit, 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 and you're ready. It's part of preparedness. And Jesus begins with commitment, and we would be wise to decide in advance what we're going to do when we face the pressure of temptation in our lives. Make that decision in advance, and you'll be prepared. You'll be fit and ready for the challenge that comes. So why did Jesus get baptized? He made a commitment. He aligned himself with the Father, and he made it very clear that he was here to fight sin. Here's the second conundrum. I've got five today. The second conundrum is why was Jesus praying after his baptism? Why was he praying? I mean, honestly, why does Jesus pray at all? That's often, I've often wondered that when I, I, I read the Bible, I would see that Jesus prayed a lot. In fact, he, he often would try to get away from the crowds to get alone and pray. And he'd do that in the morning and he'd do that at night. It seemed like he did that in the middle of the day. He did that on a boat. It sounded like Sam I am, right? He did that on the boat. You know, he was there with a goat. You know, all those things. It's just like Jesus prayed here and there. Jesus prayed everywhere, you know, to be Dr. Seussian. He prayed everywhere. He prayed lots. And we think, if anybody doesn't need to pray, it would be Jesus. Or maybe we should be smart and flip it around and say, if Jesus needed to pray, then how much more do I need to pray? How much more do I need to to pray? So Jesus is praying after his baptism. Um, You know, we have a big theological word for it. It's called the incarnation. Here you see the Son of God equal with the Father, coming to become man. This divine, yet very much man person. It's confusing, it's challenging. Uh, The word we have for it is the incarnation. It puts him in a place of dependence on the Father. And... uh, Jesus always is talking about his dependence and with, on the Father and his unity with the Father. Not only does he say, I'm dependent on the Father, but he's also saying, I'm in unity with the Father. And John probably captures it the best of all the uh, gospel writers. Here's, here's, just one, uh, here's just one. He's in an argument with Pharisees. They say, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. This is John 5, 18. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. There was, you know, sometimes people say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. The Jewish people knew better. The Jewish uh, witnesses who heard him speak, they knew what he was saying. They said, you are claiming to be equal with God. Well, he was equal with God. Now, if he wasn't, it would have been blasphemy. It would have been, uh, in their culture, a horrible thing to claim. It says, Jesus gives them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. And yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So the son can do nothing by himself. He only does what his father is doing. He only 
Because whatever the father does, the son does. So he's, he, he can't do it by himself. He does what he sees his father doing. He does what his father is doing. And his father loves him uh, and shows him all he does. It's just sort of like, we're like, well, I mean, this isn't close enough, really, to be honest. We are totally united. So your accusation that is right. I am saying that I am equal with God. I am saying that God is my father. I am saying that I am in unity with him. That's one of the things that prayer does for us. Brings us into unity with the father. And oh, I need that in my life. Because I cook up my own schemes and I don't always bring God into them. I don't know about you. Maybe I'm the only one. Let me ask the question though. What areas are you trying to succeed in but you haven't brought God into it yet. Are there any? Any areas you could say, man, I am really wanting to win in this area. I'm wanting to succeed here. But I haven't brought God into the picture in this area. I haven't checked to see if I'm aligned with him, if I'm one with him, if I'm doing what he would do in this scenario. I haven't asked him to bless this area. I haven't asked him to approve this activity. I haven't asked to be a partner with him in what he's doing. I haven't asked him for the empowerment to succeed. If Jesus needed to pray, we need to pray. So we need God's blessing. We need his approval. We need his partnership. We need his empowerment to succeed. And mostly what God is going to do is he's going he's to, as we pray, he's going to align our lives more and more with what he's doing. Because what he's doing is unstoppable. It will succeed. A lot of things I cook up don't succeed. Oh, I could tell you stories after stories of failures in my life. I've cooked up a lot of schemes along the way. And uh, not a huge track record. But you know what? There's been those times where I partnered with God. Found out he does all the heavy lifting. I just have to make sure my footsteps line up with his. And it's like, wow, we are really making progress here. This is amazing what can be accomplished. Because I'm doing things lined up with the Father. So as Jesus prayed at his baptism, he put himself, he placed himself in dependence and unity with the Father. We need to do that as well. And that is a great second step of preparation. So you've made a commitment. You've aligned yourself with God, but then prayer is the way that you maintain that. Prayer is the way that you, you keep that alive and living in you and that you don't veer off into your own, uh, your own agenda. Here's the third question. Why did the Holy Spirit come in a form of a dove? Seems strange. Could it come in the form of an eagle? A hawk? Cardinals are nice to look at. Blue jay? Why dove? Why dove? Jesus said about doves, he, he said, or he said to his disciples, he said, I want you to be wise as serpents, because serpents were smart, I guess, or they are smart, or whatever. But I want you to be harmless as a dove. Harmless as a dove. You know, when you have power over other people, your true nature will be revealed. When you have power over other people, your true nature will be revealed. Things will surface that you didn't know were there. Because a lot of times in our lives, we're, we're kept uh, behaving better by the checks and balances of life. Right? Why don't I swear at my boss? 
I mean, so he can hear me. Right? Why? I'm not, I'm not talking about my situation. My, my boss is the board. It's possible. Uh, how, why do you, why don't people do that? Well, they do that because there's a check and balance. They'll lose their job or it'll have bad, bad repercussions. But why do I swear at that other driver? Because it'll be over in a few seconds and they won't get my license plate number because I'm going to turn quickly. And it's accountability that often keeps us behaving better. But who are we when there's no accountability? That is the revelation of our true nature. And sometimes we don't like that revelation. Who are we when we are in a position of power over somebody else? Who are we when we can't be, we won't be held accountable by any earthly person? Jesus said, I I want my followers to be harmless like doves. I don't want them to be doing harm with the empowerment I give them. The Holy Spirit comes in a form of a dove on Jesus, and it's a symbol of purity, of innocence, of of meekness. Now, don't be confused, because meekness sounds like weakness. It's not the same. Meekness, weakness is a lack of power. Meekness is power that's been submitted to God. So powerful people, I'm, I'm not saying don't be powerful. Be powerful, be intelligent, be talented, be brave, but still be gentle and kind. Don't use the power that you have to do harm. Let me look at, I'll look at just a number of scriptures that talk about uh, how Jesus was prophesied about. Isaiah 42, 1-4 says, Here is my servant whom I uphold my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. That's empowerment we're talking about. Jesus will have power. That, Isaiah was saying that hundreds of years before. I'll put my spirit on him and he'll bring justice to the nations. And that's power. The power to bring justice to the nations. But listen to how he does it. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Oh, okay, it's that sort of power where you don't need to show off, Right? A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teachings the islands will put their hope. So here you have this one who has the power to bring justice to the nations. And he will succeed in his mission. But as he does his mission, he's going to encounter bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. And this is talking about people. And when he finds one, in his power, when he finds one who is weak, a bruised reed, to snap that. No. A smoldering wick. It's almost going out. Sometimes we feel like a smoldering wick. We feel like we could barely shine at all. See, Jesus has the power to bring justice, yet he's tender with the weak and with those who are failing. He's compassionate with those who struggle. Listen to him in Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, and verse 28. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. 
For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The one that is powerful enough to bring rest into our lives, no matter what the situation, the one who can actually address the the source of our weariness is also gentle and humble. Here's the last one, Luke 4, verse 18. says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Again, talking about empowerment. Empowerment to do something. But then what does he do? Proclaims good news to the poor. Freedom for the prisoner. Recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, Jesus... In, Luke, when, in this passage in Luke, in Luke 4, Jesus has picked up a scroll. He's in the synagogue. He's picked up a scroll. He's chosen that one, the one where he can find Isaiah 61, and he's reading it. And he gets to a certain line, and he sits down. You always stood, you stood to read the scripture, and then you sit for the commentary, right? Because the most important thing in any uh, time together is scripture. Did you know that? What we're doing now is second it's the commentary. But the scripture reading, that's really important. So he'd read the scripture, and then he would sit down, and he said, today, these words have been fulfilled in your presence. In other words, I am the fulfillment of these words. About this one who will be so anointed by the Lord, but then his anointing leads to all these wonderful things for poor and oppressed and blind and captive. Years ago, I heard a guy speak on this, and I, I've, been, I've been thinking about it for years. He says, said, was, why did Jesus stop on the line that he stopped? You know what the next line is out of Isaiah 61? See, the line he stopped on was, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But the next line is, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why did Jesus stop there, and why didn't he just... Go to the ne- Why didn't he finish the sentence? And the guy I was listening to, he had he'd been thinking about this quite a bit, and he said, could it be that Jesus is outlining the seasons of history? That right now we're in the, we're in the, uh, the year of the Lord's favor. But there is a day of the vengeance of our God yet to come. Jesus, when he rode into Jerusalem, he rode in on a donkey. Now, donkeys are not necessarily uh, wrong to... If you're a king, and Jesus was Israel's king, uh, he was their king in a way that they didn't expect him, but he was their king. When he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, that wasn't necessarily wrong for a king to do. Kings can ride donkeys. Donkeys are actually acceptable transportation for a king. But you would never ride a donkey into battle. You would never say, charge, and then you see everybody with war horses, and then this one guy's coming along on <laughs> hee-haw, you know. <laughs> it's, it's different. So the king wants to get around town. Hop on the donkey. You'll get there. No big deal. 
The book of Revelation shows a totally different picture of Jesus. If you read into Revelation, it, it talks about Jesus riding a warhorse. And he's quite fearsome in his approach and what he looks like. And he, he looks like he's ready to do business and he's ready to, to bring justice to the nations. So we live in this era that has some good news and some bad news. The bad news about where we live right now is that he has not yet brought justice to the nations. And so in this era, we howl about injustice. Anyone got Facebook? We howl about injustice. Because it exists. Do you ever wonder if there's evil in the world? I don't. I not only see it in the world, I even see it in myself. I see that it's a dynamic at work. I see other people's selfishness. I see that much clearer. And occasionally God makes it clear that that same selfishness is here too. And that's painful. Because I really just like it if other people are messed up. So the bad news is God has, he has not yet dealt with the injustices of the world. And so people get away with murder. Actually, literally. Now. People get away with all sorts of things that cause human suffering and pain for others and even for themselves. The sin that Jesus came to fight against, he defeated on the cross, but the, the final application of that defeat has not come yet. So we can experience the forgiveness for our sins in life. We can be right with God. We can experience power in our lives, again, in our struggle against sin. So that sin doesn't need to be our master. That Jesus can be the king of our lives. He can rule on the throne in our lives, even though sin wants to climb up and be the usurper king. Jesus is the king. But he hasn't taken away the presence of sin yet. The day of the judgment of our God is yet to come, and it's not arrived yet. So that's the bad news. The good news that comes with that bad news is that this is a season of the Lord's favor where those who call out for the mercy and grace of God can receive it before the day of judgment. We're living in the season where Jesus rides the donkey, not in the season where he rides the wars. That means there's a massive opportunity in this part of history that we live in for people to come into relationship with God, into right relationship with God, for their sins to be forgiven, for them to have God's uh, love and his leadership going forward in the days to come. We live in the season of opportunity, the year of the Lord's favor. So when Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is on me, and he's anointed me. He's anointed to do not just the merciful things that he is working out in the world now, but he's also anointed to bring judgment later on. But we're just living in that first part. So how do we respond to that? How does that help us get ready? Uh, how does this whole thing about this dove coming, this Holy Spirit coming, and I would say, let God fill you with his power. Ask God to fill you with his power. Ask him to, to anoint you by his Holy Spirit so you can minister people to people in their weakness. Ask God to give you power to help others in their weakness. 
Not power for power's sake. Not influence for influence's sake. Not fame for fame's sake, for goodness sake. Power from God so you can help others in their weakness. And that power comes by the Holy Spirit. Number four. How is God well pleased with Jesus? We see this statement. It says, you're my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. How is God well pleased with Jesus? You know, the Bible is full of verses that talk about delight between God and us. And some of the verses talk about it going this way, and other verses talk about it going this way, that there's this delight. Um, Isaiah 65, 19 says this, uh, or I mean, uh, sorry, Psalm 37, 23. Uh, These aren't on the PowerPoint in, in case you're, yeah, they're not on the PowerPoint. I just added them. The Lord makes firm the steps of one who delights in him. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in in God, right, in him. And there's lots and lots of other ones about delighting in God. In fact, I found tons of those. I didn't list a whole bunch of them. The reason why is I thought, that's probably easy to sell you on. The Bible talks that we should delight in God. Of course, yeah. Most people would say, okay, I get that. But then I found verses where it talks about God delighting in us. And I listed a few more of those because I thought, that might be a hard sell for some of you to really into. Isaiah 65, 19 says, I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. So this is a prophecy about the fu- in a future state where he's going to rejoice over his people in Israel and Jerusalem. Zephaniah three seventeen. this one blows my mind. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. So this was written to Israel, coming back to, he says, as you come back to God, he's going to delight in you. In his love, he'll no longer rebuke you. He'll rejoice over you with singing. Now, I cannot imagine, I can't fully get my head around that. When I try to imagine it, it comes off like comical. It just, you know, what, what is it like? God says, hey, Michael, Archangel Michael, come here. You want to see this song I wrote about Steve? Man, I delight in him. Man, I'm so glad he's mine. And I just wrote this great song. Okay, yeah, get the bass because it's, you know, you know. It's, well, I don't know how it works. I don't know how it works. I'm being trite about it, but in some way, God decides to communicate with us in this way. He says, you know what? You know how when you are at your uh, zenith, your highest point of delighting in something, you break into song? <laughs> I sing. I sing. I rejoice over you with singing. Yeah, it sort of makes sense. I mean, we think of us singing, but I don't think we think of God singing. Yet, he says that he he sings over his people. He rejoices over them with singing. How about this one? Luke 12, 32. Do not be afraid. This is Jesus speaking. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Did we have to twist God's arm in order for us to be accepted into his kingdom? Or his kingdom is another way of maybe saying that he's the king and and we get to be uh, aligned with him and serving him. Is that something that God was sort of resistant to supplying or providing? No, it said it was his pleasure. It was his pleasure to do that. That God has pleasure 
in this unfolding of his plan to bring us into uh, his kingdom, to being his followers, to, to being in, in relationship with him. This was God's pleasure. John 15, 15 says, I no longer call you servants. Now, we are servants of God. But he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. So he's the leader. He has his disciples, the followers. And he turns to them one day and says, you know what? How this normally works? You know, you've got a leader, a teacher, a rabbi, a, someone who has disciples who he's teaching them. And they are his servants. They really, you know, follow him. He says, hey, I call you friends. I call you friends. Sometimes I think I get, this is me personally, sometimes I get, I get so zeroed in on the servant aspect of serving God that I forget that I'm his child. I forget that he's not just someone to serve, he's not just a good master, but he's one to delight in. I forget that he delights in me. Right now we're trying to break through that in our Hearing God seminar. We've got about 99 people signed up in Hearing God. Why couldn't we get one more? I don't know. Anyhow, we have 99 people signed up in Hearing God. And we are asking these kind of questions. God, what do you like about me? Now, that sounds brazen. I know it sounds sort of brazen. It's like, oh, my goodness. We're so used to thinking about our relationship with God in performance measurements. You know, am I doing good? Am I serving well or am I serving poorly? Am I being fairly obedient, fairly disobedient? What's my scale? Am I getting A's or F's? What? That's how we often think about it. But this question has really been a challenge, I think, for a lot of people. They've been, God, what do you like about me? And, and, and you know what it does? I, eventually, for me, it strips away the performance part because I, I, can't, I, I think that the answer is not, you like that I was pretty obedient yesterday. I don't think that's the answer. I think that it actually gets down to the core of identity and it actually starts to uh, talk about how he's created us. The creative fingerprints of God are on all, all of us. We're made in his image and that it actually gets back to that. And you start to saying, oh, wow. When God made man, he said, it, or when God made humankind, he said it was very good. That was a very good creation. Okay, God. In what way do you see me as part of your very good creation? Yes, there's sin in the world. Yes, there's sin that I'm wrestling with. There's sin in me. I know that. But what do you delight in in the way that you made me? Because you didn't, you didn't make any duplicates. You didn't make any carbon copies. You didn't use a cookie cutter. And so that's really got me thinking. And I, some of the ones in the Hearing God Seminar, we're asking that question. Okay. And we're listening, right? We're just being quiet. We're meditating. We're listening before God. A question that almost sometimes feels wrong to ask. And more questions than that. Here's my question for you. In your effort to do your duty, have you missed out on delight? In your effort to serve the master, have you missed that he's a father? A good father? The 
good father? He calls us into delight. He calls us into enjoyment. And he, again, to say it seems preposterous and outrageous, he takes delight in us. And so the saying that was said over Jesus at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, is the heart cry of every human being. If you were standing there on the shores of the Jordan as that was happening, as, that, as this voice was speaking over Jesus, I, dollars that on it, your heart would have ached to hear those same words. Is it possible that God could love me like that? Is it possible? And scripture shows us again and again that, yes, yes, the Father's love for us is so incredible. In fact, we'll never fully understand the width and breadth and height, but we pray for that. God, show us more and more the love that you have for us. Here's the last question I have for you. Why, does, why is the genealogy in here at, at all? Just to give us tough words to say, what's the point of it? The geneal- there's a genealogy in Matthew that talks about, okay, Matthew's account of who Jesus, and it goes all the way back to Abraham. This one, though, goes all the way back to Adam. And through it, it covers several, there's several unknown characters in there, and there's a few known characters. You, you'll come across King David, you come across Abraham, and you come across Adam, and a few others that you might know. But those are the, the high points. Why is that here? At the beginning, when Jesus is just going to start his ministry, he's just going to go out and take on the forces of evil and, and, and bring the forces of the kingdom to bear into, in Israel and the world. His genealogy gets brought up right there. Luke brings it up. He says, you know what? Just like David was the king of Israel, Jesus is the king of Israel, the long-awaited king of Israel, the one who would sit on David's throne. And just like Abraham, there was a promise that came through Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through Abraham. Guess how that's going to happen? It's through Jesus. That's how the blessing for the entire world is going to come. And he is the fulfillment of the promise to Israel that spreads to the whole world. And finally, you know how Adam, he's the beginning of it all. He's the, he's the first man, the one from whom the, the whole human race comes. Jesus is a new Adam. And what that means is that there's a, whole, there's a new understanding of what it means to be human. Jesus is going to upset everything. He's going to turn it on its head. There's going to be new access to God. There's going to be new opportunity. All the racial and ethnic barriers that were currently that currently divide us, where you're a Jew and I'm a Gentile. Luke, by the way, is writing not to a Jewish person. He's writing to a Gentile. All those things that divided us, all those things that said that you're in and you're out, they're they're going to be erased, and instead we're going to have one hope for all the nations of the world. Jesus, this same Jesus, the hope of all the nations. Do you know that, just this is a statistic thing just to throw out there, you know the most diverse, 
When you look, you can look this up when you get home. The most diverse ethnically religious group in the world are the people who say, I am a Christian. Half a billion people in Europe say that. Half a billion people in sub-Saharan Africa say that. Half a billion people in Latin America, so if you go Central America on down into South America, half a billion people say that. They're a Christian. In North America, a little more than a quarter billion say that. In Asia, and uh, about a quarter billion, roughly, say, I'm a Christian. No other religious thing in the world is, is diverse like that. And it's back here where some of that began, right? God was speaking through a nation to the world. But then God changed things. And that's why you meet Christians of every ethnic variety in the world. Because it's not an ethnic thing. In fact, if you're a white guy like me, you're very much in the minority in the, Christian, in the body of Christ. Praise God for that. God is raising up people from every nation and tongue and tribe for his glory. For his glory. He's creating a spiritual family that spans the entire globe. And it started with Jesus. My good friend and co-worker Chris Drinan, he pointed this out to me about this passage, about this genealogy. There's lots of people in the genealogy that are unknowns. They're not famous. They don't have a great story attached to them. We don't even know who they are. Isn't that the beauty of it? God invites people like you and like me into his story. He invites us into his story. He's building a family for himself across the world. He's, he's, uh, he's doing it throughout many generations. He's crossing every ethnic barrier. And he's inviting just regular people. No name, no pedigree, no fame, no claim to some great narrative to play a part in his much, much greater narrative. The story of Jesus is the story of history and he calls us to play a role in it. And so we looked at some of the things Jesus did. We looked at how he committed himself, how he stayed in step with the Father through prayer, how he um, received the Holy Spirit's anointing so that his power could be used to minister to those who are powerless. And we see here how he's creating a family for himself. And his invitation is for each one of us. It's for you and it's for me. To not just join him in his spiritual family, but to join him in his mission and what he's doing in the world. To not just see what he's done, but enter into what he's doing. To not just uh, praise his example as we do, but to imitate him. And to allow his spirit to empower us to do what he wants to do in the world. Let's stand together.
Let's pray. Lord, you are incredible. You're incredible. Lord, we exalt you for uh, who you are. We exalt you for the way in which you have called people to yourself. We exalt you personally for the way in which you have personally called each and every one of us. And Lord, I, I believe you want to prepare a people who can go into situations that are hard. And I believe you want to take bruised reeds and smoldering wicks and the oppressed and the captive and the blind and the poor and I believe you want to empower them by your Holy Spirit so that at the end of the day people say this doesn't make any sense that the weak things of the world would rise. It doesn't make any sense but you've chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. You've chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. You've, you've changed the game. And so, Lord Jesus, we, instead of hiding our weaknesses, instead of sh shoving that down or trying to put on a brave face or a mask, we expose our weaknesses because in our weaknesses, you are strong. Our story is not about our willpower. It's not about our charisma. It's not about our background or our pedigree or all that we had working for us. It's not about our gifts or our abilities. Our story is enveloped in your story. Our story is about you. You're the hero of our story, not us. We recognize you. We recognize you. You're the hero of the story. You're the one uh, we find meaning in relationship to. And so, Lord, I thank you that you are weaving throughout history this incredible story, this incredible narrative that we can be a part of. And so, Lord, we don't want to miss that. We don't want to miss your invitation. We want to join you. We want to join you in what you're doing. Lord, give us great discernment to see how you're working in Moose Jaw. Give us great discernment to see how you're already working. Lord, we want to join you in what you're doing. And so, Lord, help us to join the, the thing that we know is going to succeed because you're in it. And Lord, give us eyes to see beyond just, the, just the, the surface details. Help us to see what you're really about. And, Lord, we, we believe that if you were led into a place where you faced real opposition that that will be the same for those who follow. So God, we ask for your empowerment, your strength. Lord, a deepening of the character in, a, in us. Lord, you want to make us like you. Please do. Please make us like you. Even, uh, even as we, uh, we know that it's going to call us into repentance. Pray, just, Lord, lead us. We know if you're revealing something in our hearts, that you're, it's your timing. You're showing us because you can help us through it. So, Lord, we just trust you. We want to walk with you. We want to walk in step with you. We want to want, know what it's like to be on the other side of the harness, the yoke, where it's easy and light because the power is provided by you. So lead us into those things we ask. And, Lord, for each one who uh, this morning, they need to know the next step of obedience. I pray you'd show us what that is. Show us the next right thing that you've called us to do and give us the simplicity just to obey. We ask that in your name. Amen.